tonight as we've gathered on this Good Friday service, we've gathered to remember all that our Savior Jesus Christ went through nearly 2,000 years ago for you and for me. And I don't know about you, but so often on Good Friday, the focus can be on the physical aspect and just the brutality and the crucifixion and all along the way what Jesus experienced physically with his body. But tonight, not only will we focus on that as the scriptures teach us, but I want to challenge you to go on this journey with me. Will you also join me? And I want us to enter in and I want us to think about what it must have been like for Jesus, the thoughts that must have been running through his mind. And not just the thoughts in his mind, but the burdens that he carried in his heart and how this affected him emotionally as well. You see, last night we gathered in here and we celebrated Monday, Thursday as Christ instituted Holy Communion as he was with his disciples in the upper room and they, they sang a hymn and they headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was with his disciples. Judas has already gone out of the picture. He's betrayed them and there's 11 of them left and he leaves the majority of them in a certain spot. And he says, I want you to stay here and I just want you to pray. Can you pray with me just one hour? He takes three of that group, Peter, James, and John, and he asks them just to come just a little bit further. And he asks them, will you also pray and intercede for what's about to happen tonight? And just before he turns to go just a few steps further to pray by himself, he says these words. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Do you see that? Do you sense that? His soul is overwhelmed. Stay here and keep watch. You can imagine that Jesus knew that Judas was going to be able to find him there, that he knew that this company of soldiers, these Jewish soldiers would find him there, these high priests, these religious leaders that couldn't wait to get their hands on Jesus were just so close. They weren't too far off. And yet, right before that, Jesus turns to the Father and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Now think about that. Certainly he was thinking about the physical abuse and just how painful this evening and this morning and the next day was going to be for him. But have you ever thought about the spiritual implications of this? See, we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin that he lived a perfect, sinless life. He had no idea up to this point what it meant to live with sin in his heart or in his life. See, you and I, we know what that feels like because we deal with that each and every day. And even though we confess our sins, we have this thing called original sin that continues to be part of our lives. And we continue to struggle and battle that. Yet here's Christ who's never had that experience. And not only is he about to take the sins of one person, he's about to take the sins of the entire world, everybody who has lived and everybody that, who, will, who will one day live. All of those sins will be placed upon his body. Imagine those thoughts. And yet somehow he's able to muster out the courage, yet not my will, but yours be done. I mean, how many of us, if we knew that we were facing death, certain death, and that God was calling us to do something that seemed completely impossible, that we would be able to utter the words, yet not my will, 
but yours be done. That's why the scriptures tell us that Jesus was always obedient to the Father's will, even obedient unto death. And then Judas and the soldiers and the religious leaders arrived. I want you to think about how excited they were. Here they have been chasing Jesus around. They have been plotting to, to capture him. And Jesus each and every time somehow managed to escape because it wasn't his time yet. Some of them even promised to stop eating until they had captured and killed Jesus. Finally, finally they have him in their possession. And they're so excited about this. They're so just overwhelmed the fact that, that he's actually there in their possession. And think about this. Jesus wasn't really that hard to find. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that he had gone often with his disciples, a place that would have been really easy for Judas to find him there. It's kind of like when you're playing hide and seek with kids, right? You don't go and you don't find a complicated, you know, hidden part of the house to, to hide from them. You go and you, you go to a place where it's easy for them to find you. And that's exactly what took place that night he purposely led his disciples there. He purposely led them to the spot where he knew it would be the easiest for them to find him. And they come and they're, they're, they come bearing these weapons and he asks them, well, is this what you think that this is all about, that I'm leading some kind of rebellion, that you need all these weapons to take me captive? And yet he stretched out his arms and he allowed them to take him captive. And his trials began in fact, his trials were going to be in two completely different systems, a Jewish trial and a, Roman, and a Roman trial. And for some reason, the first place that he ends up is in Annas' house, the former high priest. It says they brought him bound first to Annas, and he just happened to be the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who actually was the high priest. And we're not really sure why he goes to Annas' house first. See, this was the time when the Roman government actually ruled the land, and the Roman government gave the Jewish people a certain amount of authority and a certain ability to rule their own people, but they weren't even allowed to appoint their own high priest. The, the, the Roman government actually would tell them, this is who your high priest is going to be this year. And so Annas must be this guy who just has a lot of influence, maybe not in a, in a position that Rome has given him, but a lot of influence among the Jewish people. And Annas, you've got to imagine, he must have been excited that Jesus is now in his presence and he can ask him these questions. And the scriptures tell us that Annas is asking him questions about all these teachings that he's done the last three years. And he starts asking him questions about his disciples. And Jesus actually responds to Annas. He actually says these words, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews gather together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? 
See, throughout his three years of ministry, right, Jesus had no problem engaging the religious leaders. He had no problem getting in confrontations and having these debates and telling them that the way they were doing things was wrong. This wasn't the way that his father had set things up and they had corrupted it and they had done all these things that were against God's plan and God's will. And once again, here we see Jesus having this interaction with a religious leader. But he goes now to Caiaphas's. And when, you know, at Caiaphas's house, all of the Sanhedrin, all of the top religious leaders of the day are assembled together. And they're literally looking for evidence that they could put Jesus to death. But they didn't find any. They had witness after witness after witness come in. And they made accusations and they would repeat some of the teachings that he had done his last three years. And they would say, well, he said this and he said that and he said this and he said that. But their statements didn't even line up or agree. The high priest actually at one point stands up before them and he asks Jesus, are you not going to answer any of these accusations? Are you not going to answer any of the questions that have been brought before you? And what does it say? Jesus remained silent and he gave no answer. What's going through his mind? What is he thinking about in this moment? And again, the pride priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And the scriptures tell us that he just continued to remain silent. What's interesting is you can actually go to Israel, you can actually go to Caiaphas' house. And they know it's his house because it's right outside the city walls, exactly where it would need to be. And it'd be a straight shot to the temple and there are these purification baths that are outside of his home. And you can see this home and you, you can go into this home and you can tell that there's been prisons that have been built, that have been dug out into the basement of this home. And the only people that had prisons in their homes, believe it or not, were the high priests. And they would have lowered Jesus down into this prison. And they would have left him there as they talked and they strategized and they were trying to figure out a way to put him to death. And ultimately, he asked him one more time, Caiaphas actually tore his clothes apart. He was enraged with so much anger. He was so upset. This was blasphemy. Now in their law, in their customs, right? The Old Testament, that if you claimed to be God, you were stoned to death. They thought that they were carrying out exactly what God wanted them to do. And they heard it from Jesus' own lips to their own ears. But this wasn't the first time that Jesus had said this. In fact, Jesus had said this many times throughout his earthly ministry. In fact, the first thing he did when he first started out his ministry is he went into a temple and he grabbed a scroll from the prophet Isaiah and he read to it and he told the people, I am the Messiah right from the very beginning. And don't you know that the people that were in that temple actually chased him out and tried to push him off a cliff and kill him his first day of ministry. See, Jesus has always been truthful about who he is and what God has called him to do. But I want you to see the level of legalism that these guys stoop to. In their system, in this Jewish trial, in this Jewish system, that if you have a trial and, and people are coming and they're being witnesses and you have a verdict for somebody, you actually can't sentence that person on the same day. 
So they waited till the next morning. They literally waited till the next morning. And that's why it says in Mark 15, 1, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. You wonder if these guys even slept the night before. I bet you they were up all night. They were just elated, again, that they had physical custody of Jesus. And what about Jesus as he's laid in this cell, in this dirt, in the bottom of this home? What was going through his mind? What were the emotions that he was carrying with him? And it says they bound him again, they led him away, and they hand him over to Pilate. And thus his Roman trials begin. Now you've got to imagine these Jewish people came together, these religious leaders came together, and they had to make sure that they had their story straight. And so they had all morning to figure this out, and so they finally go before Pilate in Jerusalem. And Pilate says, well, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, you have said so. And the chief priests accuse him of many things. They're making all these accusations. And you know how you can tell when someone's not really telling the truth is when they overdo it. And there's all these false accusations that you can read about that not only was he claiming to be God, but that he wanted to overrule and overtake Caesar and that he wanted to overrule and overtake the Roman government. They even accused him of not paying taxes to Caesar. They were throwing everything at the wall to try to get it to stick, to try to convince Pilate to sentence him to be crucified. But Pilate knew something was up. And Jesus wasn't going to answer it. And he actually even asked Jesus, why aren't you going to answer all these outlandish accusations against you? See how many things they're accusing you of? I mean, how many more things can they come up with? But yet Jesus still made no reply. And because he didn't defend himself, because he didn't say they're wrong, Pilate was actually amazed by this. Well, someone comes and tells Pilate, that Jesus is actually from Galilee. And when he finds this out, he realizes that's actually Herod's jurisdiction and not really wanting to sentence Jesus to be crucified, not really wanting to deal with this problem on this Friday morning. He sends him to Herod, who happened to be in Jerusalem at the same time. See, Pilate didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem either. In fact, he had a huge palace out in Caesarea, and the only time he had to come into Jerusalem was when the Jewish people were having festivals, and the only reason he was in there was to make sure that there was crowd control, that nothing crazy took place because they didn't want an uprising as they ruled over these people. So he sends them to Herod, and he makes them Herod's problem. Some of you might remember this name, Herod. This is the guy that actually ordered the execution of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one that was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. John the Baptist was born around the same time as Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist's mom and, and Jesus' mom were actually relatives. John the Baptist is the one that got to baptize Jesus in the Jordan River. So can you imagine standing nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball with Herod, one of the guys who has killed not only one of your closest friends, but a family member, someone that was sent to prepare the way for you. This would be your opportunity to get back at him, right? This would be your opportunity to tell him how you actually feel about him. And when Herod saw him, he was actually pleased. He thought maybe Jesus could do a magic trick, maybe Jesus could perform a miracle. I mean, he was really kind of excited to see Jesus. And he started throwing on all these questions and asking Jesus all these questions. But what does it say? Jesus, what? He gave him no answer. 
And yet the chief priests and the teachers of law were just standing there, accusation after accusation after accusation after accusation. And then Herod with his soldiers that he had at his temple or his house, they ridiculed and they mocked Jesus. Again, the mental capacity that Jesus had to have is people are literally mocking him, dressing him in an elegant robe, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, spitting on him, which is one of the most awful things you can do. I mean, how much do you have to hate a person that you literally spit on them with the saliva that's in your mouth? And when they were done making fun of him and pushing him around and spitting on him, they sent him back to Pilate. And here's the interesting part. Now Pilate is in front of this group of people the second time, right? He's like, what am I going to do? Why are you guys so upset? Pilate wasn't convinced that there was actually any real proof that, that Jesus should be sentenced to die. So what that he claims to be God? There's lots of people that have, been, that have claimed to be God both before Jesus and after Jesus. Why is this guy any different? Why is it so important that you kill this guy? Why do you want me to order his execution? And so Pilate comes up with this idea. He says, you know, I think I have an idea of how I can appease the crowd. I'm going to have my soldiers, my Roman soldiers, some of the most brutal people on the planet at this time, I'm going to let them whip Jesus. And I'm going to let them make a crown of thorns and put it on his head. I'm going to let them strip him of his clothes and put another robe on him. And that's exactly what they did. They too got down on their knees and they mocked him. They got in his face, they spit on him. They did all these crazy things, all these physical things to his body. But remember, don't just think of all the physical things that he'd gone through. Think about all the things that Jesus had to hear over and over and over again from this group of people. And see, part of Pilate's plan was, okay, now it's the third time. I'm going to bring him out in front of the crowd. I mean, we, we beat him to a pulp. I mean, he, he's beaten so badly that he's almost dead. Certainly this will satisfy the crowd. And so you kind of imagine Jesus standing there with blood coming down every part of his body, his body swollen. I mean, who even knows what his face, if his face was even recognizable. And yet as they're standing there, and he's thinking that maybe, just maybe, this is what would satisfy the crowd. Instead, the crowd yells out. It's hard not to imagine just the depravity of man in this situation. Even if he wasn't God, just as a fellow human being, that someone could have that much hatred in their heart. That even after seeing somebody beaten so badly that you would still want the person dead. Again, it's that sinful, fallen nature. And as much as we don't like to admit it, guess what? We have that same exact nature. And when anger rages in us and we allow things and our emotions to overtake us, sometimes we say things or we do things that we have no place saying and we do things we have no place doing. But what do they do? They put his clothes back on him. And they put the cross on his back and they tell him he can carry his cross out of Jerusalem, his last walk out of Jerusalem that day. 
And there they were in the streets with the crowds being able to see them. And I can just imagine the noises and just the things that must have been on Jesus' mind is how he walks his own cross till Golgotha, till the place of the skull. This is the part that's always been so amazing and so difficult for me. Is that as you read the scriptures and you find out that there was actually two other thieves there and you do the research about when thieves were crucified, that each and every time the thieves would fight and kick and bite and scream and swear at the soldiers. And who wouldn't? If you're getting ready to be crucified, why wouldn't you use every ounce of your being, any energy that you have left to fight? To make sure that you didn't end up on the cross. Just maybe there was a chance that you could escape and get away. But not Jesus. The scriptures tell us that Jesus willingly, I want you to think about that, that he willingly went to the cross. And that he willingly stretched out his arms as he watched as they put nails on one side and nails on the other side. As Jesus, in control the entire time, puts his feet together and allows them to drive a nail in his feet. Absolutely humbling to think of what he went through, what he was willing to do for us. Again, not just the physical aspect, but the emotional and the mental strength that he must have had. What was going through his mind and as he hung there on the cross for you and for me as the sins of the world were placed on his body we know that the one who was foretold is now forsaken this was his moment this was his mission this is what God sent him to this earth to do to die for you and for me and he hung there He hung there for a long time. In fact, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Think about that. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, this word forsaken actually means that he was exiled. That now all of a sudden, for the first time in his human life, he is now separated from God. He knows how destructive sin and darkness can be to the human heart and to the human condition. And he experienced this, this separation from God for you and from me as he cries these words out to our Heavenly Father. But the most remarkable part of this whole thing is in those final hours and with those final breaths, somehow... Jesus is able to to muster up the words and he says, it is finished. And I want you to see how much he's in control of this. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. See, the Jewish people didn't kill Jesus that day. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. Pilate, even though he ordered his execution, didn't kill Jesus It was your sins and it was my sins that put him on the cross. But it was love that kept him on that cross. Love killed Jesus because he knew this was the price that needed to be paid for you and for me that we could be reconciled to the Father. 
That one day when we close our eyes in this life and we open them up in the next, and in case you didn't know, life goes really, really fast and we don't have a lot of time on this earth. But when we open our eyes that we would see Jesus face to face, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his grace and his mercy, because he died on the cross before any of us were born. He did something for us we couldn't do for ourselves. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says Christ died for us. How much he loves us. So on this Good Friday, I want you to hear this. Jesus speaks forgiveness over your past. You know, I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what your life has been up to this point. I don't know the journey that maybe you've been on, the sins that you have committed. But no matter what it is that you have done, trust me, listen to me. God's word is so clear in this. He paid the price for it. And he is ready and he is willing to forgive you of any sin that you have ever committed. In fact, he will forgive you and he has already paid the price for any sin you will commit in the future. That's how much he loves you. And not only does he speak forgiveness over our past, he speaks freedom. Think about this. Freedom over our future. You and I, we have been set free. See, so often on these Good Friday services, you know, the idea is that we should just, you know, have our heads hang down and we leave here and we just feel defeated when we leave and we should go home and feel defeated and we go to bed tonight, we should just feel defeated until we get to the Easter service. But that's not the point of the Good Friday service, that's the point of why the gospel writers included this for us to even read and know the account of what Jesus went through. Jesus would tell us to lift up our eyes to lift up our chins, to look at the cross. Because if you want to know what he was thinking about at all those moments that night, he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. And he was thinking about the love that he has for us and he knew that he had to do this and he willingly did this for us. He loves you. And so tonight when you leave here, know that you are a redeemed child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You confess your sins. He is faithful and he is just. No matter what sins you've committed, he is faithful, he is just. He will forgive you of all of your sins and he will set you free.